If you turn your Bibles to John chapter 1, John 1, one of my personal favorite verses, because if Jesus Christ doesn't come to earth, if God does not become flesh, if he does not become one of us, then he cannot die for us, and if that hasn't happened, then we are all still dead in our trespasses and sins. And so here as we pick up and continue onward, I will begin in verse 14. We'll take uh, down to verse 28, fairly long passage of Scripture. But we now see in view, and what comes into focus is the ministry of John the Baptist and how he is going to present the incarnate one, Jesus. Now, he's not the first to do that, and it's so important that we recognize this One of the things that always amazes me is at times the biblical ignorance of the church because they own Bibles, but they don't read their Bibles because if they read their Bibles and specifically the Old Testament prophetic word, then they would know a lot of things about who Jesus is before they ever got to the New Testament. And so here in this church, we study God's word authoritatively, chapter and verse, Uh, We go from book to book to book, and so we know that the Old Testament contains uh, about 486 different little vignettes, windows into the life of the coming one, the Messiah. One of the chief of those uh, is found there in Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah has many. It has the Mount Everest, as far as I'm concerned, uh, Isaiah 52 and 53. But there in chapter 7, it says this in verse 14. Interesting that both are verses 14. Remember, those were not there in the original language. I don't know if the translators got that uh, purposely, but there in verse 14 of Isaiah 7, it says this, And therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, and behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Would you join me and let's pray? Father, thank you for sending your own son, Jesus, into this world, taking on himself the form of a man, being 100% man and 100% God, being with you in the beginning, being part of the creation, and yet being one of us. Lord, we thank you that you came, that you counted it not robbery to do so. And we ask now that as we read your word and study it, that you from heaven would impart truth to us here on this earth. We bless your name. We thank you, Jesus, for your life given for us. It's in your name we pray these things. Amen. And so John now picks up that theme. And so whether you're reading Isaiah the prophet or Daniel the prophet or Zechariah the prophet or you're reading through the prophetic psalm, Psalm 16, Psalm 22, it speaks of the one who will come. And in fact, further on in the book of Isaiah in chapter 40, The prophet Isaiah is going to speak of one who will come and prepare the way for the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Messiah of hosts. And so that verse is now going to get quoted by John the Baptist, who is now standing in the River Jordan, baptizing Jewish believers into biblical Christianity, as far as we're concerned. Of course, they didn't carry Bibles at that time, but they had been, the gospel is being preached, and so. Now they're, they're becoming saved, and John is baptizing them. And though the Lord himself is going to come on the scene in just a moment, as soon as we pass this passage, we'll, we'll see him face to face. But now it says in verse 14 of John chapter 1, And the Word, 
became flesh. So that same word, the same logos, the same creator God, the one who was and is and is to come, the one who framed the worlds, the one who created the entire universe, the one we've been studying on Sunday nights that is the same God of Genesis chapter 1, here in John chapter 1, the one that's described in Romans chapter 1, the one who is responsible for all that is, the one that the book of Colossians in Colossians chapter 1 says that he is the sustainer of all things, that one, the word, does exactly what Isaiah the prophet said, that word becomes flesh. God with us people. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. If you don't have that verse highlighted in your Bibles, that's a highlighter verse right there. Because in it we find the basic gospel message. It is that God saw mankind... Knowing who we are, knowing what we are, knowing fully that we are exactly as Paul would write to the church in Ephesus, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, that we have no way to cure that problem ourselves, he takes his only begotten son and sends him into the world, that the world through him would be saved. And this principle differentiates biblical Christianity from every other world religion. This is the thing that's different. Because in this case, God, in the the second person, becomes flesh, becomes one of us, and is actually 100% God and 100% man. That's not what Islam teaches. That's not what Buddhism teaches. That's not what Mormonism teaches. That's not what Christian science teaches. This is unique to biblical Christianity. And when I use biblical Christianity, I'm defining it as the real gospel that really saves. Because the real gospel that really saves says there's exactly one way man can be saved. There aren't multiple roads. And all the political banter and all all of that talk that goes on in our world that says, well, you know, we all worship the same God. No, we do not. And in fact, we very specifically do not because all of those other world religions claim a different Jesus. And if you have a different Jesus, you have the wrong Jesus. Because Jesus is going to say about himself, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but by me. And here we have him is God incarnate in human flesh on this earth. Notice how it continues. And John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. Now, this is speaking of John the Baptist, and we'll see that in just a moment by the message he proclaims. But if you look at the history of John the Baptist, John the Baptist was actually born before Jesus by six months. So when he says, this one was before me, he cannot be talking chronology. He has to be talking eternity. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace 
for grace. Oh, anybody love the grace of God? Amen. Amen? If, if, if you have a problem with the grace of God, you actually have a problem with, with God's plan for salvation. Because God's plan for salvation has been so simplified as to make it available to all mankind. You see, God couldn't have loved the entire world unless he did something about it. If he only came for the elect, then he didn't love the unelect. If he doesn't love all the lost, then one could say he doesn't love any of the lost. So God incarnate in human flesh comes into the world that the world through him would be saved. And so it is really grace for grace. It's God's unmerited favor that saves us. And that grace comes to us through a vehicle which is a gift to us, which is faith, exactly as Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says. In other words, you don't learn how to be saved. You understand what I'm saying? You see, that's another kind of work. If there's something I can just simply know and then be saved, that's work. If there is something you have to do in order to be saved, that also becomes work. So it is grace that saves. It is God's completely 100% unmerited favor, and it comes through the vehicle of something he gives you, which is faith. That faith that is the gift that's given to you produces in you by believing the grace of God. Mind-boggling. Because here's the good news about that. Anybody can receive a gift, anybody can believe, and anybody can be saved by grace through faith. Not everyone can understand if it's just mental knowledge. Not everyone can do if it's something you must do. But everyone can hold out an empty hand and say, thank you, Lord Jesus. That's the grace of God. And so John the Baptist is now going to get interrogated, and we'll take the rest of his interrogation here. It's, it's an interesting conversation he has. He begins by saying, And of his fullness we have all received grace for grace, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You see, there was grace in the world during the time of Moses. We know that because Moses received it, Amen. Moses got angry and killed somebody. What did God do to him? Didn't kill him in like kind. That's what the law demanded, didn't it? The law at that time was if you took someone's life, you forfeited your own life. So Moses actually received grace. The same is true for Abraham. All liars will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Abraham was a liar. He lied about his own bride. Well, she's my sister. We have that recorded in the scripture, by the way. How would you like your whole life recorded in a book that everyone else is going to read and go, oh, that's grace. You see, it's a beautiful picture because John the Baptist is setting the stage for these guys to ask these questions. Notice what he says. No one has seen God in any time. The only begotten of son who is in the bosom of of the father, he has declared him. You see, here's the problem. We're so sinful and so wretched, were God to show himself in all of his glory and majesty, we'd all die from seeing him. So if God himself had come into this world, the reason that he was, Moses was hidden in the cleft of the rock is because he couldn't see God. So God says, here's what we're going to do. I can't go myself because my glory will kill them. 
but I can send my son. And furthermore, I've actually got to have my son become something so that they can witness him, so they can see him. You see, all of the miracles of Jesus, all of the words of Jesus, everything Jesus did and said while he was here on this earth was done so that we could know God. All of it. Notice how he goes on. You see, that has declared him. That's how we know God. Because we saw Jesus. We heard of Jesus. We watched Jesus. Jesus walked on this earth and did these things. And now this is the testimony of John. So this is speaking again of John the Baptist, not the author John. And when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? Jerusalem from the lower Jordan, the place where we believe this event occurred. There's a little baptismal site there. We have been there and baptized there, and we baptized in the one that's at the north. Uh, it, it really becomes insignificant at some point in time because it's all symbolic. We don't know if Jesus was on that rock or this rock, but that spot that's most commonly associated with Jesus' actual baptism site directly adjacent to the city of, Jer- of Jericho, which is in the West Bank, so it's in the Palestinian-controlled territories. But they're in the Jordan River, about 21, 22 miles from downtown Jerusalem, from the Temple Mount, is where this is taking place. And so this group has been sent from the leaders of the synagogue, from the leaders of the Sanhedrin, and the leaders of the Pharisees to go down and find out what's going on down there in the Jordan Valley, because this is really close to where the priests spend their off days, which is the city of Jericho. So down the Jericho road, they would have come around the Mount of Olives, through Bethany and Bethpage, and down to Jericho, and they go across the valley, and there's this crowd on the banks of the River Jordan with this crazy guy wearing a camel hair coat eating locusts and honey. And there he is in the river. Who are you? Maybe a better way to read it. And he confessed. He did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. He didn't want anybody to be messed up about this. He said, I'm not the Christ. You see, if you go to a Passover Seder in a, in a Jewish home today, they're still looking for the Christ, the Messiah. And in fact, a place setting will be set for the Elijah who is to come, the one who would bear witness of the coming one. And so these are legitimate questions. This is what they understood. Well, you're not the Christ. Maybe he's Elijah. Maybe he's the prophet who is to come. And so they ask him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. I'm not any of these things. And then he said to them, or they said to him, excuse me, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? Well, let's just cut through the middle of this argument And why don't you actually tell us, in other words, he says, what do you say about yourself? And so here comes John the Baptist. He's now going to tell them who he is. So he's denied being the Christ. He's not the prophet of Christ. He's not Elijah. Now he's going to answer their question. Comes from Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 3. 
I am the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. He's saying, I'm the one that's telling you about the one who's coming. And now those who were sent were of the Pharisees. And they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you're not the Christ, Elijah, or the prophet? And John answered and said to them, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. And these things were done in Bethbara beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. The incarnate word now comes into view. John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus' ministry. Jesus is actually going to come and we'll see him baptized. We're going to see him begin the ministry that's recorded by John. But Jesus now in, in that sense becomes visible here in John's gospel as the incarnate word. We have a brief summary, basically, here. And and it begins by reminding us that, look, Jesus is eternal. Notice what it says. He was before me. The only way that could be possible is if Jesus existed in eternity past. Because John was actually born before Jesus. So he's making it really clear. There's no way that they could miss that. Because if they did any research at all, they'd go, well, you know, John, you're, you're older than this guy. This one that you're telling us about. You were born before him. Six months before him. So in other words, John the Baptist and Jesus, though they were reversed in birth order, Jesus was the eternal one. Not John. A second thing, and we ought to be praising the Lord Jesus this morning for this, because he is the fullness of grace and truth. You see, if there is no grace, if that truth isn't, isn't in our world, if you can't know God's grace, if you can't be saved by grace through faith, if there's some other way that you come into a relationship with God, then we're all in very deep trouble. As Alex was saying before we began worship, there's not a person in this room that hasn't stumbled exactly like everyone has always stumbled in the points of the law. Amen? You know, if you've ever told a little lie, uh, you've ever coveted someone else's car, you've ever looked at someone else's house and go, you know, I don't know why they got that. That should be mine. The whole country's coveting our baseball team right now. (laughs) Just saying. Man is inherently covetous. We're never satisfied. You realize that's not okay with God? And so God does something about it in a way that we can all receive it. Because if we all had to change our thought processes to never become covetous again, oh, are we in trouble. We ever have to have all of our thoughts come out 100% perfect so that we never, ever, ever have a God before him. 
not even for a couple of seconds, we're all in trouble. Because from time to time, you're probably your own God. So am I. I'm not thinking about what he wants. I'm thinking about what I want. That's not okay with God. So if you have to get saved by squaring away 100% of your action, 100% of the time, we're all dead in our trespasses and sins. But praise God, he has made us alive. Amen? Because by grace and through faith you've been saved, and that not of yourself, it's a gift of God. Grace comes into our life through that truth. He's the fullness of it. He's the completion of it. Not that it wasn't invisible before, but now Jesus brings it into reality into our lives. And of course, Jesus reveals God to us. I, sometimes, I, I like to ask people these questions. Well, how do, what do you know about God? You know what's really crazy? Almost without exception, they mention the things of Jesus. He does miracles. He loves the unlovable. He's kind to people who are mean to him. He forgives. How do you know those things? Because Jesus revealed them to us. How do you know you're forgiven? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You, you see, what we know about God, we know because of Jesus. He revealed God to us while he was here. I, I love the miracles the Lord did because so many of them were done publicly. Can you imagine the disciples? You know what they knew about God? You know what they knew about faith? You imagine them at the feeding of the 5,000 well, we went into town and all we got is a lunch and we got some loaves and fish and it's just like we don't have enough stuff and it's like, ah! And they're whining. It's like, Lord, tell them to go. You remember what the, the disciples, the wonderful disciples, send them all away. That was their idea. What does the Lord do? He fed all of them so that not one person went away hungry. And oh, by the way, the boys had to cart off the scraps, each one with their own basket completely full. You know what that tells us about God? He loves everyone. He's got enough for everyone. He misses no one. And he takes care of people who are failures. You see, we know that because that's what Jesus did. John the Baptist says, I'm going to make sure that you understand that he's going to reveal God to you. John records those words. You see, it's this beautiful picture of how we relate to God. Because you, you have to have the right Jesus. And a Mormon Jesus is just one of God's many sons. Islam teaches God doesn't have any sons. The reason I'm sharing those things with you, if you believe that Christ is only an ideal like Mary Baker Eddy in Christian science, then you've got the wrong Jesus. Jesus came to this earth in a human body, lived a sinless life, and he was murdered for you. Then he was placed in a grave, and three days later, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he was raised to fullness of life. That's a very specific Messiah. That's one of one. 
That's not one of many. And certainly isn't just an ideal. Jesus wept. Jesus bled. Jesus was hungry. Jesus was thirsty. Jesus didn't have a house. Jesus got angry, turned over a money money changer's table. You see, when we think about Jesus, we can think about what God would do in human flesh. Because he did. It's exactly why he was here. Fully relates to everything that you will ever go through or have gone through. And so John basically makes it clear this way. He says, look, guess what? I'm not him. I'm not Messiah. He says, I'm not Elijah. I'm not Moses. I'm not the prophet who will be like Moses. He takes all three things that the Jewish people would have been looking for. and He says, I am none of those things. But I am the one that Isaiah told you about in chapter 40. They wouldn't have known chapter and verse, but we call it chapter 40. He said, the one who's crying in the wilderness, that's who I am. Make way, make straight the path of the Lord. I'm just telling you about the one who's going to come. And oh, by the way, he's here. He says, this one who's coming is none other than Jesus who is the Christ, and he's the Son of God, the God-man. You see, a lot of people misconstrue who Jesus was when he was here, and there's all kinds of theories. He was just an ideal. He was the God-consciousness. He was a phantom or a spirit. There's all kinds of things that are said about Jesus, and yet the Bible is very clear that Jesus was a real man. An individual that everyone knew as Jesus. He had a name. You know, sometimes people will ask, you know, they they like to, and and again, I I realize that sometimes it's just a a title of respect, but they'll, you know, they'll use the term reverend and then say my name. And it kind of like puts a knot in my stomach. And the reason I do that, the reason it bothers me, because there's only one reverend one who's ever walked this earth and his name's Jesus. The rest of us put our pants on one leg at a time. I'm not him. He's him. And so the one who needs to be revered is him. And he went by a name, and his name is Jesus, Yahushua, God who is salvation. And that Jesus was the one who was and is and the one who is still to come. Amen? So our king's coming again, in case you didn't know that. You see, the word that's mentioned in the first verse through the third verse is not an abstract concept. It's not something that you just mentally understand. The word, logos, is a he, Jesus. And that word became flesh and dwelt among us. In other words, he became one of us. That's why when you read the gospel, especially the gospel of John, you're going to find Jesus in every human condition you can think of. Hungry, thirsty, weary, bleeding, beat, chastised, humiliated, misunderstood. Am I speaking anybody's language this morning? You know why he did that? So that you would know that he can relate to anything you're going through. 
Because if God had come in all of his glory, you'd have had a tough time relating to God in all of his glory. But you can relate to a hungry Jesus. You can relate to a thirsty Jesus. You can relate to a misunderstood Jesus. You can relate to a hated Jesus. You can relate to a Jesus who had sandals on his feet because his feet hurt when he walked. You can relate to Jesus who is a man. And so Jesus comes and bears the sin of the world as a perfect, sinless man. 100% God. We call it the hypostatic union. Hypostasis basically means that something becomes one. All God and all... That's hard for us to understand. All man and all God? For us, we're like, well, he's one or the other. Praise God, the Lord knows things that we don't know. And so he he uses that same phrase, by the way, that's translated uh, here uh, is the word nature. In other words, his nature, as it is in Hebrews chapter 1, he is the exact imprint of his nature. In other words, God is. So when Jesus tells her, you know, well, who are you? He says, I am the bread of life. He says, I just am. I don't need to become that because I always was the bread of life. I always was and will always be the living water. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way and the truth and the life. He is those things because he was never less than those things. Even though he was man, he was still fully God. As we think on him, we need to keep him in the right place. Because if you make him less than God, then God didn't die for your sins and that sacrifice isn't sufficient. If you make him less than a man, you make him more than a man, either one, then he becomes unrelatable to us. And that sin nature that needed to be defeated wasn't defeated. But that sin nature was defeated because he was yet without sin. Praise God. In other words, Logos, Jesus took your place. He did for you what you cannot do for yourself. He did for me what I can't do for myself. He provided grace when what I should have gotten was judgment. He gave me mercy when I, when I should have had retribution from God and wrath. I want to give you one verse. You can quickly turn there. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. And if you combine verse 14 here in John 1, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, along with this verse, it's just a beautiful commentary on a little of who Jesus is. And we, we could spend all day talking about Jesus. That would be easy. I, I could stand up here until I have no voice left and just talk about Jesus. Because Jesus saves but it says there in verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 8, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? Because if you're here and you're a child of God, then you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ because it is grace that has saved you. You know that grace, that unmerited favor from God 
nothing you have done, all that he did for you, and actually in your place. He took your place. That though he was rich, you know why it says that? Because when Jesus died on Calvary's cross, he was God. And the sheep and the cattle on a thousand hills, the gold and silver in every mine, the earth and the fullness of it is the Lord's, and he was the Lord when he died on Calvary's cross. Though he was rich. So rich as to own everything, including us in that sense. We were created by him. All things, what did it say? We're created for him, and without him was nothing made that was made. He was rich. But notice what he did. Yet for your sakes, my sake, our sakes, plural, he became poor. He gave all of it away. Not because he no longer possessed it, but because he said, if I give this away, then I can bring them to me. I can save them. If I keep it, if I just go back to heaven with my glory, then they perish. So he gave his life away. He gave his life a ransom for many. Amen? By his stripes you have been healed, as Isaiah said. You see, he became poor. That you, through his poverty, might become rich. Is that crazy? Jesus took what he was, and he says, I'm going to offer this up so that I can bring them with me when they leave this planet. That's why he says, look, I go to prepare a place for you. For in my Father's house are many mansions. So he's reminding you, look, I'm still rich. But I gave that up and became a man and walked on this earth and suffered everything that you will ever suffer through. Every pain, injustice, inequity, disparity, whatever it is that you've gone through, whatever you brought into this building today, Jesus has gone through every bit of it. 100%. Tested, Scripture says, in every single conceivable way and yet without sin. No failure on his part. And so four things, and we'll end with this. His great riches express the greatness of our God. His great riches. You see, no matter who you are in this world, and no matter how wealthy you may be or not be in this room, your Heavenly Father owns everything. And so because you are now related to Jesus, you now inherit everything. It's a pretty sweet deal by grace, amen? Through faith, amen? You see, so that, that riches of God have now been put into your account. There's a great reason he did it, because he wanted to express his grace to you. The same thing he did with, with Cain and Abel, the same thing he did with Adam and Eve, the same thing he did with Noah, the same thing he did with Abraham, the same thing he did with David, the same thing he did with Moses, all of those who died in faith, the same thing he did with Rahab. He still does for us today. He pours out grace upon grace. Because some of us, in a human sense, are more worthy than others, if you want to look at it. We, we would say, well, you know, compared to him, compared to her, well, I'm really good. The problem is you need to compare yourself to God. And when you do that, you're going to come up just a tad short. Just saying. So he doesn't make it perfection in a human sense. He makes it grace. And he gives you that grace by giving you the gift of faith to be able to believe.
Hallelujah. His great redemption. That word redemption means to buy back at a price. In other words, there's a price in you. You remember, some of us in here are old enough. You remember, it used to be fun to go to the post office because there they were, the FBI wanted posters. So you go, man, I think that guy lives next door to me. You know, we didn't have cell phones and smartphones. There's a picture of this dude. It's an ugly picture, but man, he looks guilty. Here's the crazy thing. Your picture was next to his. And it said, wanted by God. And oh, by the way, the penalty was death. You had a death sentence on your head. Your photo was in the post office, and God said, you're going to die. But here's the cool thing. He redeemed you. Amen? Jesus was rich. He gave his riches into your account so that his riches could pay your debt. That's the gospel. What a beautiful picture. You see, because I was destitute. I was poor and I didn't know it. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. I was headed to hell. And so it is the word, it is God incarnate in human flesh that supplies these things. And the fullness of the Godhead looks at this and says, look, this is what's happening. This is what's going on. This is what we're doing. Can you imagine God offering up his own son and then seeing his own son's scarred hands and feet? His scarred back? The scars on his forehead from that crown of thorns? And yet God said, It pleased him to bruise his son. Why is that? Because that bruising saved you, saved me, saved us, if we'll believe. That sacrifice was accepted because Jesus said, Father, forgive them, all of them, every last one of them, anyone who will believe, forgive them. Because they're not all that bright. They don't know what they're doing. Praise God, Jesus was in it all the way too, huh? And we know it was effective because Jesus was raised again on the third day. Same power that raised Lazarus, raised Jesus. So God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all had a hand in the incarnate word as he becomes flesh, paying the price for our sin so that we can be saved. Amen? Amen. Would you stand? Let's pray together. As you're standing, one day Revelation 21 says, a loud voice from heaven, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He's coming again. That's only good news if you know him. It's bad news if you don't know him. So I want to let you know this morning that, that if you're here today and you've never invited the incarnate one into your life to be your Savior and Lord, we have, we have a team in our prayer room that would love to pray that prayer of salvation with you, share the good news of the gospel with you. We, we don't want you to, You can leave here with nothing else. But the one thing you must 
one day deal with is your eternity. And only Jesus can take care of that. Don't leave here without Jesus. This is our prayer team, prayer room, my left, your right. For the rest of us, because you're one of God's kids, live like it. Live like it. Lift your head up. Look to heaven. Tell people about the king. And don't let anybody stand between you and your king. Amen? Father, thank you. Thank you for the beauty of your plan of salvation that you sent Emmanuel into this world that we who would believe would be saved and have everlasting life. And I want to pray if there's anyone here today, anyone at all, that does not know you, that right now by your spirit you would convince and convict of the gospel message which has been preached, that would go to that prayer room and invite you, Jesus, into their life. Lord, they could even do that in their seats right now. But Lord, your word says if we will confess you before men, you'll confess us before our Father. So to do it publicly just gives us a wonderful start. So God, convict and convince of the gospel. For the rest of us, thank you, Jesus, for putting off the glories of heaven and coming to this earth and dying for us so that we might have eternal life. We bless your name and God's people all said, Amen. Amen. God bless you.